High in the Andes Mountains, a group of men pushed a massive boulder from a quarry to the valley below. They watched as it toppled down the hill, wiping sweat from their faces. There were hundreds more stones to go, and the ruler wouldn't let them rest until his new city was complete. Frequent earthquakes had shaken the rock in this area loose, and luckily broken many of them into smaller boulders. But getting those boulders from the mountaintop to the construction site was just the first step. They still had to be carefully whittled down. If the dimensions weren't exactly right, the physics wouldn't work. The luckiest workers had bronze tools. The rest had to make do with sharpened river rocks. Some stones weighed thousands of pounds, so each one would take hours to chisel. After that came the most grueling part of all, maneuvering the boulders into place. The men strapped ropes over their shoulders and slowly dragged the humongous slabs on a wooden sled. They pulled it along a slightly inclined track until it finally slid into position. It was all in the service of something bigger, something intended for a small group of Incan elites. But one day, it would be enjoyed by millions. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our final episode on Machu Picchu. Once an Inca stronghold in the Andes, it's now one of the seven wonders of the world and Peru's most popular tourist destination. Last time, we joined Professor Hiram Bingham III as he explored and documented the site in 1911. When Machu Picchu made headlines, experts descended on the city, hoping to uncover the secrets of the Inca Empire but answers remained just out of reach. Today, we'll reveal the truth about how and why the city was created. We'll follow the Incas as they grew from a migrant tribe to one of the most powerful empires in the Western Hemisphere. They seemed unstoppable until Spanish conquistadors came barreling through the region. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. 
History professor Hiram Bingham III shot to fame after he photographed Machu Picchu. It was visually striking, perched thousands of feet above sea level in the Andes Mountains. Although the 2,000-foot-long Inca city was buried beneath jungle overgrowth, it was surprisingly intact. The problem? There were no written records from the Inca. Scholars were left to speculate not only how the city was constructed, but why. To answer those questions, they went back in time. So today, we'll do the same. Before the Inca became the influential empire we know today, they were a mixture of small tribes. They lived near their cultural center of Cusco in modern-day Peru. The exact date has been lost to history, but most experts agree they moved to Cusco around the 1200s. After about 200 years of relative quiet, they went head-to-head -head with a neighboring tribe, the Chanca. The Chanca were known as strong warriors with a keen sense of military strategy. At the turn of the 15th century, two Chanca brothers wanted to expand their territory. They recruited smaller clans to join them in challenging the Inca. When the Inca ruler saw how big their army was, he was terrified. He took his son and fled deep into the jungle. His people were left to fend for themselves. Many followed their leader's example and retreated. Meanwhile, in 1438, a young prince stepped up as the new ruler, willing to face the Chanca army with what remained of his people. He adopted the title Pachacuti Inca Yuponki, which translates to He Who Transforms or Earthquake. But while Pachacuti was brave and inspiring, it seems he didn't have a plan. Since we don't have the Inca's own words to tell us what happened next, it's difficult to paint a clear picture. But thanks to painted tablets, oral storytelling, and records from the Spanish conquistadors who came later, we've done our best to piece together the story. Just keep in mind, the Inca often mixed their history and mythology. According to Incan legend, Pachacuti snuck away to a quiet spot on the water and prayed to the gods. He hoped they could give him advice about what to do. Suddenly, the rocks along the water transformed into stone soldiers. The gods had sent Pachacuti an army of supernatural warriors. Pachacuti returned to his people, followed by his new army of stone soldiers. Together, they faced the Chanca in two different battles. The Inca came out on top both times, reclaiming their city Cuzco. Afterward, Pachacuti used the skulls of the two Chanca brothers as goblets. Legend has it, Pachacuti built temples for the gods so his people could worship the divine helpers for years to come. But there wasn't much time for his people to enjoy their homecoming. On the coattails of his first victory, Pachacuti set his sights even higher. He led his army out of the city and into the surrounding jungle. They pushed deep into the nearby Cusco Valley and didn't stop until they got to Lake Titicaca on the border of modern-day Peru and Bolivia. And they conquered every single tribe that stood in their way. 
At the height of their power, the Inca ruled over an estimated 12 million people. Pachacuti had to put new systems in place to keep his massive empire in check. So he did what any smart ruler would do and created a bureaucracy. Everyone had to pay taxes. For those who couldn't afford it, there was another, more direct way to repay the government. Forced labor. For up to two-thirds of the year, citizens worked off their debts through public works. This might mean building and maintaining the nearly 25,000 miles of roads that ran through the empire, or revamping entire cities. The Inca could afford all this new construction because their land was flush with natural resources, including tons of gold and silver. They had so much, they used it in their masks, gloves, and clothing. Pachacuti had an entire wetland in Cusco drained to make room for a sprawling palace where the walls were lined with gold. With his vast supply of manpower and riches, Pachacuti built entire cities from scratch. For most of recent history, scholars assumed Machu Picchu was one of them. But that idea came into question in 2021, and with it, everything we thought we knew about the city in the sky. Coming up, Machu Picchu re-examined. Now back to the story. The Inca Empire flourished with Pachacuti at the helm. Most thought Machu Picchu was one of his many creations, but in 2021, new information came to light. That year, archaeologist Richard Berger used radiocarbon dating to test some of the older skeletal remains found in the city's tomb. It turned out people may have been living there as far back as 1420, 18 years before Pachacuti took power. On the other hand, Tools found at Machu Picchu suggest it was still being built around 1450, right around Pachacuti's reign. And it's believed that some of the design of Machu Picchu, like the irregularly stacked stones without any mortar, were influenced, if not made, by the Kolya people, master masons and engineers who'd been conquered by the Inca. Either way, it's safe to assume Pachacuti made the city into what we recognize as Machu Picchu today, and it thrived throughout his reign. At its peak, some 750 people lived in Machu Picchu. With a thriving population, Pachacuti had to make plans for its safekeeping. He ensured that the kingdom, including the city, would be passed down to his son, Topa Inca Yuponki. To prepare Topa for leadership, Pachacuti retired from the front lines and took on an administrative role. Topa assumed military command and pushed the borders even further into modern-day Chile and Ecuador. The empire's biggest change-up happened in 1471, when Pachacuti officially abdicated the throne to his son. Sometime afterwards, he fell ill and died. As legend has it, Pachacuti had lived to be 125 years old. Topa went on to rule a stretch of land the length of the continental United States, a far bigger empire than their Aztec contemporaries. Inca subjects enjoyed certain benefits like valuable goods and government-sponsored feasts, but they were still a conquered people. Many of them were doing back-breaking work. 
By the early 16th century, their frustration had boiled over. A series of rebellions broke out in the empire. This was precisely the wrong time for a revolt. Boatloads of French, English, and Dutch colonizers were arriving on the shores of North America, and Spanish conquistadors made landfall to the south. Waves of Spaniards made their way westward. One by one, the tribes that came in contact with the conquistadors were viciously wiped out. First, the Taino, then the Aztecs and the Mayans. In just a few decades, millions of indigenous people were killed through a combination of warfare and disease. Under Topa, the Inca lived in relative isolation on the west part of the continent. The Spanish arrived in the north and the east, separated from the Inca thanks to the nearly impenetrable Amazon rainforest and Andes mountains. But things took a turn when Topa died at the end of the 15th century. Huayna Capac succeeded him as emperor, but the rebellions continued. And now there was another problem, smallpox, a disease the Inca had never been exposed to and had no immunity from. It spread across the continent well before the Spanish did. In 1525, Huayna Capac died of what is believed to be smallpox, as did his chosen heir. Without a second heir in place, a civil war broke out between two of his remaining children. Ultimately, his son, Atahualpa, came out on top, but the end was still near. A Spaniard named Francisco Pizarro had the Incan Empire in his sights. Pizarro was the illegitimate son of a Spanish colonel and a peasant, and by all accounts, his heritage left a giant chip on his shoulder. By 1519, he was working as a magistrate in Panama, where he upheld the laws around forced labor. But Pizarro wasn't satisfied. He wanted fame and to be like Governor Hernán Cortés, storming the countryside and brutalizing populations in the name of the Spanish crown. According to records, he was also obsessed with gold. When he heard about an empire in South America that literally lined their walls with it, his sights were set. Pizarro quickly raised some money for an expedition and set out in search of the Inca. When he landed in the Incan port city of Tumbas, he saw produce, goods, and gold. Pizarro returned to Panama and soon sailed back to Spain. He asked for permission and a proper army to conquer the Incan Empire. The crown granted his wish. With his army secured, Pizarro headed straight for the heart of the Inca, Cuzco. But before he could reach the Incan seat of power, Emperor Atahualpa heard of the conquest. He waited for Pizarro's arrival in the nearby town of Cajamarca, where he welcomed the incoming troops. Pizarro, in turn, invited Atahualpa to a grand dinner in his honor. The king showed up with an entourage of thousands, including some of his finest warriors. The Inca were wined and dined and lavished with gifts. The next day, Pizarro invited Atahualpa and his court to an enclosed plaza, where Spanish soldiers staged an ambush. 
The Incan warriors fought back, but spears and clubs were no match for swords and guns. When the dust settled, 7,000 of Atahualpa's men had been slaughtered. The Spanish didn't take a single casualty. Pizarro spared Atahualpa's life, holding him hostage instead. The emperor promised two rooms full of silver and gold in exchange for his release. The Inca began to deliver, but Pizarro killed Atahualpa anyway. Now, all that was left to do was to storm Cusco. Pizarro stripped the gold from the palace walls and destroyed every building he came across. The surviving Incas fled the ruined city and retreated to the countryside. This time, there was no Pachacuti or stone warriors to save them, and their plight wasn't over yet. Emboldened by his victory, Pizarro cut a path of death and destruction through the rest of the empire, one already weakened by smallpox and civil war. Pizarro only enjoyed his spoils for a few years. In the end, his undoing wasn't on the battlefield. It was in his own courtyard. He supposedly ordered the execution of a rival and fellow Spaniard, which angered many soldiers. In 1541, a gang of them snuck into his house and stabbed him. But the reign of terror didn't end with Pizarro. His sons and former second-in-command led a bitter battle to decide who would rule in Pizarro's place. It was so chaotic, the Spanish crown intervened and sent an entirely new set of rulers to govern the region. Meanwhile, Manco Inca Yupanqui had replaced Atahualpa as Incan emperor. The once expansive empire was now little more than a few thousand brave holdouts. Deep in the jungle, they founded a new capital, Vilcabamba. With Vilcabamba as their new home base, Manco orchestrated a series of guerrilla attacks on the Spanish. It was a solid effort, but still not enough to contend with European weapons. The Spanish found Vilcabamba by 1572. They razed the city to the ground and killed the last emperor, Tupa Amaru, and with him, the entire Inca Empire. By the end of their conquest, an estimated 300,000 lay dead. It seems the only thing they didn't destroy was Machu Picchu. It wasn't for lack of trying. There's evidence the Spanish were aware the city existed. Spanish records show that this city was controlled by the Inca Emperor. The issue was, it seems like the Spanish had no idea where the city was located. All those variables that confounded Bingham, its high elevation, the isolation from any cultural center, trade route, or port, also confused the conquistadors. Most historians agree, once news of Vilcabamba's fall reached Machu Picchu, the surviving Inca saw the writing on the wall. Their best hope for survival was to flee. We don't know what became of those residents, but we know the city survived intact and largely empty. Outside of a handful of people, no one else would see Machu Picchu again until Hiram Bingham showed up in 1911. And when he reignited interest in the city, he also provoked numerous unanswered questions. Coming up, the secrets of Machu Picchu revealed. Now, back to the story. 
The questions of how and why have lingered over Machu Picchu since Hiram Bingham came upon the site in 1911. With every other physical trace of the Incan Empire wiped out, there was nothing to indicate how the city was created. But a familiar theory reared its head. Aliens. Remember the story of Pachacuti's prayers before capturing Cusco? Supposedly, he was also gifted a golden tablet from the sun god Inti. Some people think it wasn't a myth or a metaphor. They believe it was an actual tablet. And the god who gave it to him wasn't a deity, but an alien. According to that theory, the tablet had anti-gravity capabilities that allowed Pachacuti to literally raise up the stones and create a granite army. Theorists think Pachacuti used those same capabilities to build Machu Picchu with ease. Explanations like these ignore the accomplishments of indigenous peoples across the globe, from Egypt to Peru. The truth is, the skill and talent of the Inca had nothing to do with magical tablets or little gray spacemen. As we mentioned earlier, the Inca had conquered the Colla tribe, and their cities featured the same kind of construction as what was found at Machu Picchu. Think perfectly carved stones held together without mortar with some blocks weighing several tons. This suggests the Inca didn't look for otherworldly help, but co-opted other people's techniques. Some historians believe the Inca either used the Colla to finish building Machu Picchu or had them construct the city from scratch. Still, that only explains how the stones were made. The Inca didn't have the wheel. It's reasonable to wonder how these gigantic boulders were moved from the quarry to the construction site and fit into place. The first part, getting the rocks from the quarry to the construction site, has a fairly simple explanation. It has to do with gravity, the regular kind. The quarry was above the construction site, so physics did the heavy lifting of moving the rocks from one place to the other. And while the Inca didn't have the wheel, they did have pulleys, ramps, and levers. But Machu Picchu is 8,000 feet in the sky, built directly into the side of a mountain. There are lots of steep drops and tight angles where it wouldn't be practical to use a pulley system. In the early 2000s, architect and adventurer Vincent Lee proposed a workaround. He suggested the Inca heaved the rocks onto a series of wooden sleds that were mounted on slightly inclined wooden tracks. They then used long, sturdy poles to push the gigantic granite blocks along the tracks and into place. And they could do it in very tight quarters. Not only did Lee propose this theory, he was able to successfully demonstrate it. Yet a dozen or so workers used the sled and track system to maneuver a 15-ton slab of stone up a 25-degree incline and into position. While Lee only used a small team, the Inca had millions at their disposal. Thanks to their forced labor system, they had more than enough manpower to build entire cities and thousands of miles of road. The Inca also had access to some of the most advanced technologies of the time. In our last episode, we mentioned the Temple of the Sun, used to keep track of days during the winter months. 
But that's not the only timekeeping device that's been found at Machu Picchu. Researchers have uncovered a long tunnel-like structure on the other side of the city, directly across from the Temple of the Sun. It's way too narrow for a person to climb inside, so for a while, archaeologists didn't understand what it was. During the summer solstice, which takes place in December below the equator, it all started to make sense. When the sun was at its peak, the light shined perfectly down into the tunnel. It was the other half of their calendar. Keeping track of the days was essential, both socially and agriculturally. Using these calendars, the Inca knew when it was time to plant the crops that grew on the city's many terraces. With so much care and attention on ensuring the residents lived well, we've come to our final question, the one that's been open to the most speculation. Who lived there and why? For decades after Bingham's expedition, theories were floated around. Bingham's bone specialist determined the skeletons they'd excavated were all female. Scholars wondered if the city was a convent for the Virgins of the Sun, women dedicated to Inti, the sun god. However, in the late 20th century, the skeletons were re-examined, and it turned out some of the women had actually given birth. And many of the skeletons weren't female at all. There were several male remains mixed in. Those revelations threw out the convent idea, but there was still speculation that Machu Picchu was a military fortress. The way the city was built, high up in the mountains, made it the perfect location for a citadel. But that doesn't track when we consider history. If it was a fortification, one surrounded by a dense jungle and the steep sides of the Andes Mountains, there would be few places safer than Machu Picchu. And yet, the residents fled once they found out Vilcabamba was sacked by the Spanish. As other theories floundered, the true purpose of Machu Picchu may have been finally unearthed in the late 20th century. And it might sound familiar to modern audiences. In the 1980s, an anthropologist from the University of California, Berkeley, named John Rowe, discovered a trove of 16th century documents. In them, he found a reference to a royal Incan retreat, a place called Picchu. After cross-referencing the document against known landmarks, he determined with certainty that the Pichu in question was Machu Picchu. Which would make sense. Royal retreats have been found throughout the empire. And while it might seem a little odd to build a retreat that was so hard to get to, that might have been the point. It was isolated and quiet a way for Pachacuti and other leaders to sneak away from the hustle and bustle of Cusco and relax. The fortifications weren't designed to keep armies out, but to discourage commoners from coming in. It was an Incan Martha's Vineyard, if you will. Scholars have even determined it's a winter retreat. Machu Picchu sits at 8,000 feet above sea level, which sounds like a high elevation but Cusco towers above it at 11,000 feet, which means Machu Picchu would have had a relatively milder climate. The more we explore the secrets of Machu Picchu, the more the ancient city reveals. But the location wasn't a mystery solely because the Inca didn't have a written language. People like Pizarro and other European colonizers are to blame. 
If it weren't for them, we'd have plenty of clues from the Inca in painted tablets and artifacts, objects that could have filled in the gaps and told us more about their way of life. But Pizarro and his men destroyed basically all traces of Incan society, and with it, any context. Despite that, Machu Picchu survived. Its isolation saved it from destruction, and its brilliant engineering has kept it standing for centuries. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We will be back next Tuesday with another episode. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. See you next time. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from ParCast. Our head of programming is Julian Poirot. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production, and quality control by Lisa Marie Gallegos. Ali Wicker is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Jesse Harris, edited by Natalie Prusovsky and Angela Jorgensen, fact-checked by Kevin Johnson, researched by Chelsea Wood, recorded by Alex Button, produced by Bruce Kotovich, and sound designed by Kerry Murphy. Our hosts are Molly Brandenburg and me, Richard Rossner. <laughs>